This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads at our website ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. The question is, what is the greatest love? I'll just put a few ideas on the screen of um, things that might come to mind in, in connection with this idea of the greatest love. Um, there's a song, and I, and I find it sometimes um, to, to get the general sentiments of the, the people at large, particularly in the Western world, sometimes um, just to look at pop culture gives you an idea of what people are, are thinking in, in, in terms of a particular um, theme or subject. And there's a song by Whitney Houston called The Greatest Love of All. What is The Greatest Love of All? The song starts off quite well. It starts off, I believe that children are our future. And it starts off sounding quite good. I believe that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. And it goes on about guiding children to give them the best start in life and showing them uh, a way to live their lives. But then it goes on like this. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And it's a widely held philosophy. Loving yourself will give your life perspective. Knowing yourself better, um, learning to accept yourself for who you are and loving yourself will make you a better person. But is it true? Here's some of the ways. If you look at what psychologists say, and it's quite a, a common idea that you should first accept yourself, love yourself for who you are, and then you can go on um, getting the rest of your life right. Here's some of the ways that psychologists suggest to learn to love yourself. Become able to forgive yourself. Find ways to improve yourself. Learn to understand yourself. Appreciate yourself. Don't neglect yourself. Visualize your own self-worth. Then you can develop true self-esteem. And this is supposed to be the greatest love. But do you notice a common theme coming out in all of these things? It's all about yourself. And when you start to look at that and spend a bit of time going through some of the suggestions of, of, of what you should do, it all begins to sound a little bit self-ish. Now, in thinking about the greatest love, this is something of a contradiction as most people, if you ask them, would say that the greatest love, an act of true love, rather than being selfish, is more likely to be selfless. So what is a selfless love then? The First World War, other wars too, but in particular the First World War is remembered particularly for the people willing selflessly to die for their country, to die for the things that they believed in. And this, our title, Greater Love Hath No Man Than This, That a Man Lay Down His Life for His Friends, is often quoted in war memorials, uh, sorry, on war memorial plaques, in remembrance services, all of that kind of thing. And it's evidently true, isn't it, of the people who risked and gave their lives for what they believed in. 
for the love of the people at home and their country, to preserve the way of life of their people, of their nation. But of course its effect was very limited. It saved people from the effects of losing the war, from their country being overrun by the enemy, from their way of life being altered, from oppression um, and, and so many other adverse effects of losing the war. It saved people from that, but it didn't ultimately save their lives. It might have saved many people from having to die at that time, although you think of the, the huge numbers of people that did die in the First World War and, and, and subsequent wars. So it may have saved people, some people, from dying or from a worse way of life. But ultimately those people have died or, or will die. And so will we all. It hasn't saved us from dying. So let's look at this quote, just a little more quote closely. And we're going to read this um, together in a few moments. But John chapter 15 is where it comes from. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down for his, his life, for his friends. So, it's a man showing great love. And the love there that it refers to is the Greek word agape. Often translated charity. Charity in its truest sense. I.e. giving something up for someone else. Losing something of your own so that somebody else might gain something in some way. The idea of laying down your life there, it's the same um, phrase that's used in the Bible um, of laying down a sacrifice on an altar, of laying it out to offer it um, to God. So he's giving his life as a sacrifice. The sacrifice is his own life. And the sacrifice that he's given, giving his own life as a sacrifice, out of, out of love, out of this selfless love, this agape love, it's for his friends. So it's not necessarily done for everyone. And there's another quote that we will, the Bible quote that we'll come on to in a moment, um, that is often quoted to suggest that God does this for everyone. But here, he's doing it for his friends, the Greek word philos, um, where we have words with this phil or philio um, component to them in English. Um, if, somebody, if, 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 if a word has philic on the end, it, it generally means that um, somebody loves that thing. You have molecules which are hydrophilic or hydrophobic, meaning they either love water or fear water, as it were. Um, so, philos, those dear to you those, you, those you cling to, those you care about. So that is who the man has laid his life down for out of love, those he cares about. Now, before we continue, um, we're going to read um, together um, John chapter 15 and verses 8 to 17. <clears throat> right. 
John chapter 15, starting at verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servants knoweth not what his, what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another, if, if, <coughs> that you love one another. Thank you. The words of Jesus there, clearly telling his disciples that while he was giving his life for them, um, as, as he was going to um, die on the cross um, in, in his crucifixion, he was requiring from them a commitment to him. Now we'll look um, a, a little more at that chapter in a moment, but I just first of all want to c carry on thinking about Greek words. There are several um, words used in Greek um, for the, our word love and we might use, use other words in association with love to try and describe um, what we mean or we might work it out from the context but in, in, in Greek they had several different distinct words um, the, the first is Eros there's, there's a picture of the statue of Eros in, in London also um, the Greeks called that, that god Eros, the Romans called him Cupid. Um, it's, it's the source of our word erotic or eroticism and, and, and things like that. It's not used in the Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't find a place in God's teaching. But it, it means an instinctive feeling of attraction. And this is why the Greeks believed that there was this God, Eros, who caused people to fall in love against, against reason or against... Um, against the odds sometimes um, inexplicably people fall in love and they couldn't understand it almost seems like there's an outward influence bringing those people together and, and that's why they had this idea um, of the god Eros but as I say that one isn't, isn't used in the Bible the next one is the word philio and we've already sort of seen this we've seen philos which is friends um, philio means a caring friendship People who are genuinely interested in each other's well-being, who look out for each other, like family. And it's, this word is often used in conjunction with other words and, and, and put together um, with them to make longer words like um, Philadelphia, which we think of as cheese. But um, in, in Greek, means Adelphos is, is a brother. 
So Philadelphia is to love like a brother. So it's kind of that fellow feeling, that, that genuine care. And the third word is the word agapeo. <coughs> now, agape love is putting someone else's interests before one's own. Self-sacrifice, charity in the true sense of the word. Ultimately, in the sense that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15, ultimately being willing to die to allow another person to live. So we can categorise these words then. The first is an animal instinct. It's what, it, it, it's what seems to happen in the animal kingdom as well as amongst humans. The second is a human feeling that people who believe in God and people who don't believe in any kind of God all experience, or many of them experience, a genuine interest in and, and care for one another. And the last one, agapeo, contrary um, to the song which says that the greatest love of all is easy to achieve, is something that is a godly intention and requires hard work and doesn't necessarily come naturally. Many of the people that Jesus was laying down his life for at that time didn't care for him, didn't reciprocate his love to begin with and would have to learn to do so. He was dying for people who at that point probably wouldn't have been willing to die for him. So it's, it's, it's not a natural thing and it's something that requires hard work and commitment. We're going to come back to John chapter 15 in a few moments, but if we could um, think about John chapter 10 first of all. John chapter 10 is the chapter of the Good Shepherd, where Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. I'm just going to pick out just a few verses, because the Good Shepherd is all about love. Middle Eastern Shepherd, as you see there, carrying his sheep, Middle Eastern shepherd led his sheep and they, they would follow him. Unlike um, Western shepherds who drive their sheep ahead of them with their sheep dogs and their quad bikes and so on, a Middle Eastern shepherd still today, they lead their sheep and the sheep follow the shepherd throughout the mountainous country. Um, John chapter 10 then, and we'll look first at verse 4. When he, the shepherd... Um, Jesus speaking of himself as a shepherd here. When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So Jesus is the good shepherd, and his sheep follow him. And they trust him, and they know that he will leave the, lead them to good pasture. So he's, he's picking up a, a very natural analogy, and now he's going to take it a bit further. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. Now this is going beyond normal shepherding, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not common that a shepherd has to die to save his sheep. But here he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm willing to give my life. I love the sheep so much. I'm willing to give my life to save them. And we've got the idea of the sheepfold right at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1 where the shepherd lies down across the door so that if any wolves or whatever come to attack the sheep, it's the shepherd they meet first, not the sheep. He's putting them before himself. 
Um, and then verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. So even though they, the, the, the Jews took Jesus and they hanged him on a tree to kill him, even though they did that, he says they were only able to do that because I and my father, God in heaven, were allowing them to do so. I gave my life. I chose to do it. So verse 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. So when Jesus was willing to die for his sheep, when he was willing to die for his friends, and showed that greatest agape love by doing so, he knew that he was going to live again with them. Um, John chapter 2, you needn't turn this one up. Um, John chapter 2 verse 19 to 22 Jesus answered and said unto them destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up then said the Jews forty and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days but he spake of the temple of his body so even at that early stage of his ministry he knew that he was going to die he would remain dead for three days and then he would come back to life again when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So there are many people who are willing to die for a cause, whether that cause is a right cause or a wrong cause. Now it's very often the case that acts of terrorism are carried out because people are willing to die for a cause, suicide bombers and so on. They genuinely believe in the thing they're dying for. Jesus' death wasn't just death for a cause. He knew he was going to come back to life again. It was part of a plan of love. Here's the more well-known quote that sounds like Jesus died for everyone and everyone regardless. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So people generally stop before that bit and say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son because he loved the world and he gave his son for the world but he didn't. It was so that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. It's God's desire that everyone in the world might be saved. But ultimately, it can only be those who believe in him that will not perish. But you see, it's part of a plan of love, planned out right from the beginning, that God loved the world. And part of that plan was that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, so we move on then. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 explains quite a lot about why Christ died and how that was part of God's plan of love and what the effect of that death was. We haven't got time to go into all the details of Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to pick out a couple of key verses, or just a few key verses, from verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Christ died for people who at that time 
weren't even godly, they didn't even believe. For scarcely, verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, and this is the key verse here, if we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So God required sacrifice. And Christ's death, the shedding of his blood, broke down the barrier that existed between man and God. It provided reconciliation. We were reconciled by his death, he says. He didn't die instead of us, but he showed self-sacrificing love as an example. And so, so if the barrier between man and God for those who believe in the sacrifice of Jesus and, and, its, and the power of that sacrifice and the loving plan of God, for them, that sacrifice has broken down the barrier between them and God that existed because of our sinfulness. But having been reconciled by Christ dying, it then says we shall be saved by his life. If Christ remained dead, then what hope would there be for anyone? But Christ has set a pattern that he died and he came back to life again. So those who believe in God's plan of love and salvation, they also will die. Won't stop us dying. We still have to die for our sins. But his resurrection sets a pattern for his followers. Um, let's look at just a few more verses. Verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we still have to die, because we are descended from Adam, and Adam sinned, and death came upon him and all his descendants, as described in Genesis chapter 3. But Jesus died knowing he would be raised. Verse 18. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, talking about Adam still, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So he died knowing he would be raised, so that any who follow him, when they die, they can be confident that as they die, they will be raised again from the dead. Back to John chapter 15 then. Um, and we come to those key verses um, from where our title comes. Verse 13 of John chapter 15 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So he gave his life out of love for his friends. Who were his friends? Verse 14. Ye are my friends if, that's conditional you see, if ye do whatsoever I command you. So to be his friends we have to obey his command. 
and then we can benefit from his gift of love giving his own life well what was his command verse 12 he had already told the command this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you how did he love us see the whole thing goes in a loop doesn't it how did he love us he gave his life for us so we have to try and show that same kind of love for one another as he showed to us and then we can benefit from his gift of love just a couple more passages here to 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 emphasize this ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 um, the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. So he's saying, follow the pattern that Jesus has set. Walk in love like Christ did, giving yourself for others. See, it wasn't just his death on the cross that was him giving himself. His whole life was spent not pleasing himself, but always working for the benefit of others. And he tells the Corinthians in his second letter in chapter 5. For the love of Christ constraineth us, it squeezes us, it, 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 it makes requirements of us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. So we, we're, all de we're all dead, we're all as good as dead because we're all going to die. And Christ was included in that. And in that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. So what he's saying is, follow the pattern. Jesus lived for others all through his life. Every waking moment he lived for others. And then he gave his life for others. But then he rose from the dead to glory. And he says, that can happen to you. You live your life for others because of your belief in God. And trust that by doing that for God and for Christ he will give you his gift of love so then how do we show the greatest love turn to the first letter of Corinthians and chapter 15 It's really very simple. At least it's simple to understand. It's not necessarily simple to do because it requires self-sacrifice, which, as I say, doesn't come naturally to most of us, if any of us. It's far easier and more humanly natural to please oneself. And even in doing things for others, we can still be pleasing ourselves. But to totally give yourself for others requires hard work and more hard work so how do we show the greatest love firstly we have to accept God's gift of love we have to accept that God has done this he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoso believeth in him should not perish so we have to believe him we have to accept it we have to accept what he's offered us and we have to commit to an acceptance of that by being baptised having committed to him we then have to spend our lives showing Jesus' love in action to the best of our ability genuinely emptying ourselves 
of ourselves for the sake of others and trying to remove the word self as far as possible in complete contradiction to those who the, the philosophy that we should love ourselves first and then we will get our lives in perspective we have to try and get the word self out of our life as much as we possibly can and then remember what Jesus did for us the giving of his body and his blood as he died on the cross that he was willing to do that for each of us if we're willing to accept it we have to accept our position that we are in Adam and as in Adam all die let's look at first of Corinthians uh, and chapter 15 and verse 20 well let's look at verse 19 just for connection if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men most miserable but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept so with a harvest first of all you get the first inkling that there's going to be a great harvest when you get the first fruits and the grain starts to ripen and there's just a few ears of, of grain here and there throughout the field that are showing signs of ripening and are the first fruits of the harvest and they can be taken and, and, and by the quality and the quantity of the first fruits you get an inkling of how good the harvest is going to be and sure enough a little while later the rest of the harvest ripens and the whole lot can be reaped so it is that with the harvest of people being raised from the dead Christ was the first fruits showing the sign that there is going to be more to come so he has been raised from the dead the first fruits of them that slept um, verse 22 for as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive so we're all in Adam because we're all descended from Adam and so we will all die we have to accept that 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 is the end for us except if we are in Christ having accepted him committed to him in baptism spending our lives devoted to him then we are in Christ and all those who are in Christ shall be made alive again it says in verse 22 verse 23 every man in his own order Christ the first fruits as we said and afterward they that are Christ's at his coming when he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God even the father when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death and so if all of that has its place in our lives then we can live confidently in the hope of the resurrection knowing that God has a plan for us that that plan works out of love and that that love was evidenced in Christ in the way that he selflessly gave himself and his life for any that would follow him so that they could live with him in the glories of his kingdom forever thank you we hope you enjoyed that talk for more downloads videos Information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirtchristadelphians.org.uk.